Uh, Would you all bow your heads and pray with me before we begin? Dear Lord, we praise you for this day. Uh, This day, which is a celebration, Lord, of the most significant day in all of history. Lord, we know that all of the past pointed to this day when you rose from the grave. We know that the present and the future is all to be understood in light of this day. So Lord, I pray that we would be attuned to what you have to say in this passage. Lord, I pray that you would not let me get in the way of what this passage has to say, but Lord, that we would come to a fuller understanding of what it really means for us that you rose from the grave. Lord, I pray that you would meet each and every one of us wherever we are. Some of us uh, maybe have been following you for many years. Some of us maybe aren't even sure what we think. Lord, I pray that you would meet us exactly where we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is that time of year, uh, well, from a different angle, this is that time of year when we all realize that nothing in this world is free. April 15th is a day when you realize that nothing, nothing is free. Uh, we go through our, the year, and when we think some things are free, my, my wife and I, we love to go to the library. Uh, we love to go there, we love to, especially this winter, when it was just miserable out, and we were just, we couldn't just, our kids were going crazy, cooped up in the house, and... We go to the library and just let them run around. Uh, I know it was actually annoying for some people at the library, but we really enjoyed it. We go to the library, let, 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 uh, let Grace run around, check out books, uh, uh, rent movies, all for free, right? No, April 15th, you're reminded that nothing in this world is free. Now, maybe for you, this tax season was a particularly difficult one for you. And so maybe as you were filling out your forms to file your taxes, uh, you knew it was going to hit you hard this year, and so maybe you, maybe you thought to yourself, you know, well, maybe I can just fudge the numbers a little bit. Right, right, maybe exaggerate the deductions over here, a little unreported income over here. I mean, who's really going to know, right? Who's going to know? Well, except, okay, God will know. But he's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of forgiveness. He, he will forgive me. And maybe you're not uh, filing your taxes. Maybe you're purchasing a car. And you, there's this car. It's your dream car. You know, you've always wanted this car. Uh, you realize it's not a need. It's a want. Uh, you, and you, 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 know, you think, well, I could, get a, I could get a less expensive car, and then I could use that money to uh, help feed the poor or help uh, with ministry, or I could use it in a lot of different ways. But, uh, but, but you know what? God's a God of grace. God's a God of mercy. Right? He'll forgive me. I'll just come back to him and, and, and he, will, he will forgive me. Maybe you're not filing your taxes or, or uh, maybe you're not purchasing a car. Uh, maybe you're watching YouTube videos and it's Friday night and you are so bored. You're so tired of watching YouTube videos. And there is this woman at your work who she's pretty annoying, uh, but she's actually pretty attractive. And so you think, well, you know what, I, I bet you I could probably hook up with her. And so, you know, I think, and you know what, I know I shouldn't do that sort of thing, or whatever. You know, I know that's probably not, it's taking advantage of her and it's not good. But God's a God of grace. God's a God of mercy. He's a God of forgiveness. And, and, and I can just come back to him and, and, and he will forgive me. Maybe you're not filing your taxes or, or purchasing a car or looking at YouTube videos. Maybe you're just mad. 
you're mad at your spouse. Your spouse is so stubborn and so difficult, and it's just it's taking everything in you to, to, to not say something you know you shouldn't say, but you're finally just like, you know what, I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to let her, I'm going to let her have it. I'm going to let it out. I know I shouldn't do it. I know that God would not approve of it, but you know what? God's a God of grace. God's a God of mercy. He's a God of forgiveness. I can always just come back to him and he will forgive me. Right? I mean, isn't that sort of the whole point of the gospel? That no matter what you do, no matter what you've done, he'll come back, he'll, he'll, he'll forgive you. Well, this attitude is the attitude which Paul is addressing in this passage. And this idea, well, we can just keep, keep on sinning, keep doing whatever I want to do, because God will forgive me. And uh, there, the reason why Paul's addressing it in this passage is because if you read the first five chapters of the book of Romans, that is very likely the conclusion that you will come to. Because the first several chapters of Romans are all about the unfathomable grace of God. They're all about how Paul just expounds that your, your value, your worth, your status before God is not based on your religious performance. It's not based on your moral performance. It's based entirely on the grace of God. And so, uh, in this way, coming to church is not like going to the doctor. Of course, in some ways, going to church is like going to the doctor. Right? I mean, well, here's how it's not, here's how it's like going to the doctor. Uh, Well, okay, here's the thing. Going to church is like going to the doctor. And I think that's one of the reasons why some of us, we don't really want to get involved in church too much. Right? We want to kind of keep a distance. Because going to church is like going to the doctor. And here's the reality. Nobody wants to go to the doctor. Nobody wants to go to the doctor because if you go to the doctor, well, what happens? The doctor just tells you what's wrong with you. Some of us, we'd rather just go straight to the cemetery than go see the doctor. Right? I mean, we just, we, we hate it so much because you go to the doctor and it's just, it's just bad news, right? They, they just tell you, the doctor just tells you what's, what's wrong with you. And, and, and actually, in church is kind of like that too. You come to church and the pastor just, he just talks about sin and tells you what's wrong with you. I mean, look, today, right, what am I talking about? I'm talking about sin. I'm talking about sin on Easter. I mean, come on. Easter is supposed to be such a pleasant day, isn't it? I mean, Easter is a day when friends and family get together and, and we, you know, we have a big celebration and, and maybe you get a new Easter dress and, you know, you've got a ham in the oven. I mean, this is just, this is supposed to be a time of joy. And I mean, seriously, what, I mean, really, if you think about it, why do you even go to church on Easter? That's like the worst weekend to go to church. I mean, nobody goes to the doctor over Easter weekend. Why would anybody go to church over Easter? So in that respect, going to church is, it's like going to the doctor, you, you, you know, really, why would you come on Easter? But, But actually, there's another important sense in which going to church is not like going to the doctor at all. And that is because when you go to the doctor and they tell you bad news, more often than not, that's all they have to tell you. Oftentimes, you go to the doctor, they say, this is what is wrong with you. And there's really nothing we can do about it. You go to the doctor and sometimes it's often all bad news. But here's where going to church is very different. If you come to a gospel-centered, Christ-centered church, there is always good news. There is always good news. And this is is what Paul has been expounding in the first several chapters of this book, that, that 
the unfathomable grace of God is so great that no matter what you have done, no matter how far you have turned from God, yes, you can come back to him and, and he will forgive you. Jesus says don't just forgive seven times, but, but 70 times seven times. It's a way of saying you just never stop forgiving, that, that there is no limit to the grace of God. In Ephesians chapter 3, he says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. He's saying, I just want you to get that there is no limit to the grace of God, that no matter how far you have turned, if you are here this morning, and you're thinking, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't go to church because I don't really think that I belong in church because I know what my life has been like. The heart of the gospel is that no matter where you've been, no matter what you have done, you can always come back. You can always come back because the grace of God, there is, there is no limit to the grace of God. We're not used to this in our society. We're not used to this idea that, that, that grace can have no limit. Because in our culture, grace always has a limit. It always has a limit. I, my, my wife and I, we own a condominium in, in Annapolis, Maryland, and we bought it right before the, the housing market crashed. So we're stuck with this thing. Uh, I have a real estate friend who likes to joke with me. It's not, it's not funny anymore. It was funny at first. He likes to say, you know, there's, there's three things in life that you can't get rid of. It's something like herpes, gonorrhea, and condominiums, something like that. <laughs> you heard that? Yeah. So we're stuck with this thing, and so we have a mortgage payment each month. And the mortgage payment is due on the first of the month. But our bank, they're gracious. They give us a grace period of exactly 15 days. Then the grace ends. See, this is what we're used to. We're used to grace having a limit, right? Your boss may extend grace to you, but you know there's a line. There is a, there's a limit. I was talking with uh, a woman not that long ago, and she was communicating to me that she had these fears that maybe the person that she was with, that there might come a point where he would say, enough is enough with you. And she has this fear that she just doesn't know that, that he will be able to continue to forgive her and to extend grace and I said to her, look, I don't know about him, but I'll tell you this, God will never give up on you. God will always forgive. <laughs> there is no limit to the grace of God. In fact, we find this amazing principle that not only is there a limit to the grace of God, but that somehow in our sin, that in God's forgiveness of us, he is glorified. That the glory of God, the beauty of God, the, the magnificence of God is seen most clearly in the cross. Paul says, I boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. There's this sense in which uh, our sin, the, the bigger our sin is, and the great, then the greater we see the grace of God, and the greater is the glory of God. And, and this is what, it, what it's getting at here in, in the, the verse immediately before this passage, in verse 20, actually, the law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So somehow in, in our sin, when God forgives us, he's glorified, he's lifted up. So we return right back to this question, which we find in this passage and we're asked at the beginning of the sermon is, well then, why not just keep sinning? Why not just do whatever I want to do, uh, just follow my path, and I know I can always come back, I can always come back, I can always receive 
the grace of God, and in fact, in some strange, mysterious way, somehow he's even more glorified through that. Paul's response to this is, by no means. By no means should we continue to just do what we want to do and live in disobedience to God. But why? Why, Paul? And I think we see two, two reasons in this passage and in the, the context that emerge as to why, as to why we should not continue in sin, why we should instead seek obedience. And the first principle that emerges here is this. Obedience to God is the most satisfying way to live your life. Obedience to God is the most satisfying way to live your life. That obedience to God is all about entering and experiencing the fullness of life now. You see, I think we, we have a, a, a misunderstanding of what obedience is all about. There's kind of two ways in which we go uh, with regards to our understanding of obedience. First of all, there are those who lean to the right. Those who lean to, to the right, their basic perspective is, well, uh, God's love for me is determined by whether or not I am obedient. And so if, I'm, if I don't follow his commands, if I'm not obedient then he's not going to love me. He's not going to accept me. So my obedience is all about getting accepted by God. And here's what happens. This, is, this tends to be the sort of religious or moralistic perspective towards obedience. And what happens if that is your perspective is that you generally oscillate between, uh, uh, between insecurity and pride. Because you oscillate. You're, you're insecure and uh, you, you, you're guilty. You, you, you feel guilt all the time because you're never doing enough. You're never in church enough. You're never, uh, you're never serving enough. And so you just feel guilty because you're never obedient enough. But, but then sometimes then you start being obedient to God, and now you become prideful because now you're not like all those other slackers who aren't. So then you become judgmental. So you're either judging yourself or you're judging other people, and you kind of just oscillate back and forth. Right? That's those who lean to the right. Then there are those who lean to the left. And these are those who, well, this is really what Paul's addressing. It's those who say, well, it really doesn't matter what I do. Because he's always going to forgive me. He's always going to accept me. The problem with both of these, they actually have the same problem. And that is that they think that obedience is connected to acceptance. It's a category mistake. Obedience isn't connected to acceptance. Obedience is connected to entering into living the full and the abundant life now. The first reason why we ought to be obedient to God is because being obedient to God is the most satisfying way to live your life. And it is on this particular point, when you look at the story of Adam and Eve and you look at the fall, you see that this is the particular point where Adam and Eve are deceived. They're deceived into thinking that actually obedience to God is going to lead to death. It's going to be boring. It's not going to be fun that you're missing out. And they are led to believe that disobedience is really what's going to lead to life. So that's, that's how they're deceived. Remember how the story goes. So Adam and Eve are, are in, the, in the garden, and, and here's what God says to them. He says, you can eat from any tree in the garden. You can eat from any tree in the garden. There is, and all of them are beautiful and and good to eat. You can eat from any tree except this one tree. If you eat from this one, you will surely die. Now, honestly, does that sound restrictive to you? You can eat from anything, and all of these will fully satisfy you. Just, you don't eat from this one tree. 
And they got deceived and they thought, the serpent said, no, actually, actually, this is the one you want to eat from. He's fooling you. You need to eat from this one. You will not surely die. But if you eat from this one, if you're disobedient to God, then you'll experience life. This is the deception that we find in Adam and Eve. The entire fall was reenacted for me in my living room last week. I was sitting on the floor with both of my children, my one-year-old and seven-month-old, and we were drawing. My daughter, Grace, she loves to draw. And, well, really, she likes to watch me draw, and she kind of scribbles at this point. But anyway, so there's, there's 100 crayons. I swear, there's got to be 100. And I, some of the colors, I don't even know what they are. I don't know what happened to red, blue, and green. Now there's all these bizarre colors. But there's like, there's like 100 crayons. And so we're sitting there, and Caleb, her brother, decides that he wants to, to, to draw as well. Of course, he doesn't really draw. He just eats the crayons is really what he does. But he decides, he grabs onto a crayon, and what does Grace do? She grabs for his crayon and pulls it out of his hand. And I looked at her, I grabbed it, I took it back, I gave it to Caleb, and I said, daughter of Eve. You can draw with any crayon in the living room, except for this one. If you draw with this one, you shall surely die. <laughs> and what happened? Complete meltdown. Complete meltdown. I'm, and I'm, saying, I'm like, Grace, you don't get it. You can draw with any crayon. This is the deception of the fall, that we're deceived into thinking that disobedience is the way to life. And really, no, the, the whole point is that the fullest way, the most satisfying way to live life is through obedience to God. And this is what Paul is pointing at. He hints at it here in verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And then, even more specifically in chapter 8, the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Seeing the life that allows the Spirit of God to lead you and to move you into obedience, that that is what can lead to life and peace. Angry people are not happy. Envious people are not happy. Jealous people are not happy. Right? It's... it's it's the obedient life. It's the obedient life that leads to the fullness of life. I, I, let me put it another way. I have never met anyone who sponsored a child through Compassion International. Maybe you have heard of this ministry. You sponsor a child uh, from various places around the world where they have needs. And so you, you pay a certain sum each month and you provide for their food, their clothing, their education. Uh, and I've never heard anyone say, you know what, man? I wish I had not given money to that stupid kid in Africa. I wish instead of spending that money each month on that kid, I wish I'd gotten an unlimited data plan on my iPhone. I have never heard anyone say that. I've never heard anyone say, I've never heard anyone say, boy, you know what? Uh, I, wish that, I, wish, I wish that I'd gotten a bigger house. I wish that, that instead of spending money uh, to help those in need, instead of spending money and giving to my local church, I, I wish instead that I'd gotten a bigger house. Never heard anyone say that. Okay, actually, that's not entirely true. That's not entirely true, and that's why I always tell people, 
don't give to a church you don't feel comfortable giving to. Don't give to a church that you don't feel like is really doing the work of the kingdom. Don't, don't give to a church you don't feel comfortable giving to. But also, don't go to a church that you don't feel comfortable giving to. Whenever I see new people who are coming through, that's what I always say. I'm like, you, if you're looking for a church, you want to find a church where you feel comfortable giving. And then not only go there, but give. And those people who really do find a church where they see that, boy, this church is doing what, what it looks like the, the kingdom of God is all about and they're helping people. I have never met anybody who has given to a church like that and said, boy, I wish I'd spent that money on something else, a bigger house, a bigger car. Never. They've always said this has been the most satisfying part of the way in which I've spent my money. The most satisfying way to live your life is through obedience to God. I've never heard anyone I never heard anyone say, boy, uh, you know, I, I really, really wish that I hadn't given so much of my time and my attention to the purposes of the kingdom. I wish I'd focused more on myself. I've never heard anyone say that because the obedient life is the path to the abundant life. Jesus says, I'm going to use this illustration, grab this piece of paper here. He says, Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to life. What he's saying is, there is a way that seems full. It seems like it would be satisfying. It seems like it would lead to life, but the farther you go down, it it actually squashes you and leads to death. But he's saying that the way that seems narrow, because we've been deceived... The way that seems narrow, if you follow that, the obedient life, it actually opens up into the fullness of life. The most satisfying way to live your life is through obedience. That's the first thing that I think emerges here. The first reason why we say, by no means should I continue to live in sin. By no means should I continue to live in disobedience. Because the most satisfying way to live your life is through being obedient to God. That's the first reason. And the second reason is this, is that obedience to God is about purpose. Obedience to God is about purpose. You see, obedience to God is not, sometimes we think of it as just being rather arbitrary. We sort of think of it as, well, I I, I just do what God said to do it, so I better do it. Right? You remember this like when you're a kid and your parents are like, well, you just do it because I told you to do it. Don't you hate that? Just do it because I said you should do it. Now, there's a place for that. There's a place for that, right? That God has has placed parents in authority over their children, that kids should, okay, I don't know why you said I should do that, but I'm going to do it. There's certainly a place for that. Certainly, children can't always understand the reasons why parents are saying this. And similarly, we should also be willing to be obedient to God simply because he says you should do it. But it also goes beyond that. It also goes beyond that obedience to God is all about purpose. And we see that in the, in the context that surrounds our passage. We're in Romans chapter 6. If you look back to Romans chapter 5, just in the immediate passage before, it makes reference to Adam and Eve. It makes reference to the fall. And when it makes reference to Adam and Eve, you have to see that it's, of course, looking back to what is it that they fell away from. And, of course, if you go back to Genesis, you find, well, of course, they fell away from God. They fell away from being in his presence, being in the garden 
But what you also find, interestingly enough, is that it's not just a matter of them uh, losing eternal life. It's not just a matter of them losing their relationship with God. It's them losing their very purpose. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and you see God creates man. He says, I've created them in my image to reflect who I am. And then he says that I've created you to be stewards of my creation. I've created you to to, to manage and care for my creation, to cultivate my creation. That you have a purpose in caring and cultivating this world that I have given you. So we see this in Genesis. So in Romans, it it hints back to that in Romans 5. Then we come to 6 and 7. It's all about how we've fallen away. We've turned away from God. Then you come to Romans 8, where it talks about through the power of the Spirit. Now we're able to, to begin to fulfill this purpose again. And we see purpose emerge once again in Romans chapter 8, in verse 19. Listen to what it says here. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Sons of God, that's those who are followers of Jesus. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Another way of saying that is that through the glory of the children of God returning to their purpose, the creation, God's world itself, is brought into glorious freedom. What's interesting, what this is saying is that we're given a purpose to cultivate creation, and listen to this, to actually make it better. God created the world, created In Genesis, we see he creates it, and and actually he tells us to cultivate it, and actually to make it better. In working with him, as co-laborers with him, we're called to actually make his his world better. The reason that we see this is that in Genesis, when it talks about creation, the picture of creation is a garden. But in Revelation, when we see the new creation, the picture is a heavenly city. When human beings cultivate God's creation, but cultivated in disobedience, it leads to Babylon. Babylon is a city used metaphorically in a lot of ways throughout Scripture to talk about what happens when human beings cultivate God's creation in disobedience. It leads to disarray and decay. But when God's people cultivate in obedience, it leads to the heavenly city. It points to, it anticipates that time in which all things will be renewed. You see, he's put us in this world to, to, to cultivate and actually make his world better. Now, with this understanding, now we've actually got to expand our understanding of what obedience is. Because when we think of obedience, we tend to think of it almost entirely in moralistic terms. And certainly that is at the core of it. Well, what it means to be obedient, to, to fulfill our purpose is precisely to uh, show patience instead of anger, right? It's to show generosity uh, instead of greed. It's to, to show kindness instead of envy. That certainly is at the core of it. But it's more than that. To, to be obedient to God is to be obedient to His calling on your life. To be obedient to the fact that He has created you with, with gifts and skills and abilities to be used by Him. That what it means to be obedient to God is not just about these sort of moral virtues, but it's also about using your intelligence and your creativity and just your hard work, your strength, whatever it is that God has gifted you with. He's given this to you so that you can help to cultivate God's creation and turn it into something even better than it was when He made it. 
So you see, obedience to God, it's... Well, first of all, obedience to God. Why should we be obedient to God? Because it is the most satisfying way to live your life. Secondly, we ought to pursue obedience to God because it's about purpose. God has given us purpose in this life. Now, at this point, if I ended the sermon here with just a charge, go, go out in obedience, find the abundant life, go fulfill your purpose. If I did this, it would be a very sub-Christian message and indeed a very sub-Easter message. Because actually at the heart of the gospel is this, that on our own, we are not able to do this. If I charge you to say, go... The heart of the gospel is that we are not able, at the heart of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel is the bad news. We are not able to do this. Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, that, that Not only have we sinned, but we're actually not able to get out of it. And this is what he unpacks in, in Romans chapter 7. I love Romans chapter 7 because, well, I, I think there's a verse in here that for many of us, we, without realizing it, we might consider it to be our life verse. You know what a life verse is? You know, a life verse is those people that, uh, people who have life verses, they're the people who have, they have some verse that they plaster everywhere in their life. You know what I'm talking about? These people, they just annoy you. Like they have this little verse and it's always at the bottom of their email and they've got bumper sticker on their car and they've got a magnet on their refrigerator, right? Maybe they've even got a little pin with their little life verse. And it's, it's things like Jeremiah 29:11. you know, uh, uh, the, the Lord has plans and purposes to prosper you and not to harm you. Or, or maybe Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding or, 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 or something like Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, put your requests before God, right? And so, you know, they got the little magnets and the little, e- little things at the bottom of their email and the bumper stickers. But I think for some of us, I'm like, yeah, you know what my life verse is? Are you reading my life verse? This is Romans seven fifteen. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Right? Put that on a magnet. Put it on your refrigerator. Let's get bumper stickers. Right? That's my life verse. Paul is saying, look, on our own, we're unable to, we're unable to do this. But the heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel we find in Romans 7, 24 through 25, after he rants about how he can't do it, says, what a wretched man am I who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. If you're here today and you're not sure what you think about Christianity... You're trying to explore it. And let me just kind of help you with this for a minute. Because let me just kind of cut through the fog for you. When you try to understand what, what does it mean to be a Christian, what is Christianity about? Let me just kind of cut through all of the things that kind of get associated with it. Lots of things get associated. He is, he is risen. I mean, there's no doubt. He's out. Right? Let me just cut through the fog, because there are a lot of things that get associated with what it means to be a Christian. Things like religion and politics, and, and, and even like, there's, there's almost like a Christian culture, where you feel like, am I, does it being a Christian mean I'm part of that culture? Does it mean that I have to like bad movies? 
I'm not, look, I'm sorry, there are some Christian movies that are great, but there's a lot of Christian movies that are just terrible, okay? From an artist, I'm just, I'm just saying it. It's like, do I, do, I, do I have to kind of, like, is that what it means? Let's just cut through all the fog about what it means to be a Christian and just say this. What it basically comes down to is this. Did Jesus Christ rise from the grave? That's it. Cut through the fog. That's what it's all about. That's, that's why we have this whole thing called Resurrection Week. We're just lifting it up. We're just trying to cut through the fog, and we're saying it's all about the resurrection of Jesus. And here's what I would want to say to any of you where you're not entirely sure what you think. Here's what I would tell you is that anybody, I believe, who really looks at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and does so with an open mind, not with the closed-mindedness of modern skepticism. Christians are often accused of being closed-minded, but it is on this particular point where the shoe is on the other foot. That if you have an open mind to this, you go in and you actually look at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, I believe you will be shocked at what you discover. And then you'll be in a place to appreciate the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. The first implication is that the resurrection of Jesus points to the reality that whoever trusts in him, just as he was raised from the grave, so also we will be raised from the grave. That he has conquered death, and so we also will conquer death. That, that what his resurrection represents is it anticipates and points to this ultimate day of renewal when death will be done away forever. And it also, the second implication of the resurrection is this. As Alan said at the beginning of the service, now the power of of the resurrection, the very spirit that raised Jesus from the grave, is now available to work in you. Is now available to work in you and lead you to be able to exercise obedience to him. Today is a day, it's an opportunity for each and every one of us to make a decision about surrendering ourselves to the lordship of Jesus. It's an opportunity for us to see that the gospel is about more than simply being forgiven of my sin. It's about more than even entering into a relationship with God. It's that in both of those things, it enables us now to live out our purpose, to live out obedience to Him, to live out what we were created to be. So I invite you, I invite you this morning, have just a moment of response here. I'm going to pray and then there's a moment of response when we do the offering and it's an opportunity for you to to decide do i believe this am i going to surrender myself to god am i going to am i going to pursue obedience pursue him that i might actually be in to live out this purpose let's pray dear god we praise you for the amazing truth that you have conquered death. Lord, I pray that Easter would be something we celebrate not just on one Sunday a year, but every Sunday is a day of celebrating the resurrection. Indeed, every day is. Lord, I pray that we would see the hope that we have not just for the life to come, but even in this life. Lord, not that we will ever fulfill our obedience perfectly. We know that sanctification is a process. We will never be perfect in this life. But Lord, we seek to follow you. We seek to experience the power of your Spirit working in our lives and chipping away 
at those areas of our lives that are deceived. That we might indeed find the fullness of life and exercise our purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.